0: One of my uh, most favorite stories is one that I've kind of held back for quite some time. It's a story about a parakeet and it uh, came out of Chuck Swindoll's, one of his books, and it's simply entitled Chippy. And so I'm going to read it to you. It's about a parakeet whose name was Chippy. So let me just read it to you. Chippy never saw it coming. One second he was peacefully perched in his cage, sending a song into the air. The next second he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. His problem began when his owner decided to clean his cage with a vacuum cleaner. She stuck the nozzle into the cage and sucked up the seed, to suck up the seed and the feathers at the bottom of the cage, when the nearby telephone. Unexpectedly rang. Instinctively, she turned to pick up the phone. She had barely said hello when (laughs) Chippy got sucked in. She grasped, dropped the phone, and pulled the plug from the wall. With her heart in her mouth, she unzipped the bag. There was Chippy, alive but stunned, covered with heavy gray dust, She grabbed him and rushed to the bathtub, turned on the faucet full blast, and held Chippy under the torrent of the ice-cold water, power-washing him clean. Then it dawned on her that Chippy was soaking wet and shivering as he was about to drown. So she did what any compassionate pet owner would do. She snatched up the hairdryer and blasted him with hot air. The question you're wondering is, did Chippy survive? The answer is yes, but he doesn't sing much anymore. (laughs) He just sits and stares a lot. It's not hard to see why, sucked in, washed up, and blown over, it's enough to, to steal the song from any stout heart. You know, life has its unexpected turns, doesn't it? You're nestled in the comfort zone of your life and you think that you've got everything sort of neatly packaged and everything is is as it should be when all of a sudden life unexpectedly changes for you. For no fault of your own, a circumstance or situation invades your life and it sends those anxiety thoughts and those worry emotions overboard, doesn't it? And he began to imagine all of the possibilities because of this circumstance and this situation and pretty much what happens after that. It's unpredictable. But one thing that you can count on is this, that it will cause unrelentless worry. It will cause unmitigated doubt, it will force you then to stay awake at night, and the end result is that you will be so filled with stress and anxiety over a circumstance or a situation in your life that you could almost, almost, I said, drive yourself insane. Now, for some of you this morning who are mothers of small children, you know what anxiety really is, right, ladies? You have enough anxiety on Sunday morning just getting up and getting the kids ready and getting them to church. So you're filled with anxiety. (laughs) Dads, you're not so much so, but moms, pretty much. But what Jesus is talking about here is not that kind of anxiety. It's an anxiety that is caused as a result of an over-preoccupation, as a result of the circumstances and the situations in life and all the ramifications of the possibilities of those experiences, those circumstances and those situations, and the stress that they will bring upon your life. If you sit and wonder and worry about life too long, you will find yourself in a very difficult spot where you'll be filled with anxiety and with worry to death. And all you have to do is go to WebMD, and I almost did that this morning, but I chose not to. You can look up at all the physical and emotional ramifications in regard to worry and anxiety in and on you physically. It affects us physically. It affects us relationally, doesn't it? Because when we're filled with anxiety and worry and stress, it will definitely impact our most loved and most cherished relationships. Our spouses will sense it and feel it. Our children will sense it and feel it. Our coworkers will sense it and feel it. And every relationship that we become involved in with, even on the road when you're driving to and from work, they will feel your anxiety at some point. But anxiety and worry also affects our spiritual life and impacts our relationship to God. And that's what we're going to be concerned about today because Jesus has some phenomenal insights for us as his disciples in regard to how we are to relate and to deal with anxiety, with stress, and with worry. Jesus tells us this morning that you are going to have trouble. Let me say that again. Jesus says to us today in this passage in Matthew 6, you are going to have trouble. Trouble, turn to your neighbor and said, trouble hasn't found me yet, it must have found you already. Don't say it with too much pride because eventually trouble's gonna find you. It's not a matter of evading trouble. It's not a matter of getting out of difficulty. You will have trouble and you will experience difficulty. It is bound to happen. You have either just come out of a difficult situation, you're in one, or you're about to be in one. And some of us go from trouble to trouble to trouble. Some of us, our middle name is trouble. And you may have a child like that. You may have been that child. But Jesus says when we experience trouble, we need to make sure that we guard our hearts and guard our minds because it will impact our relationship to God and it will cause catastrophic things to our faith. So how do we stop worrying about life? S-T-O-P, four principles that I want us to look at this morning. Let's take a look at the first and stop is the letter S. And the letter S says that we must submit to the lordship of Christ if we are to overcome anxiety, stress, and worry. For when we submit to the lordship of Christ, totally, completely submit to his leadership, to his lordship, it does something to stress that sort of removes the sting. Why so? Let's look at the text in verse uh, 25. Therefore... He says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Let's go back to the text and the words of Jesus. He starts off with the word, therefore, and what he's doing is he's taking his listeners and us who are the students today back to the previous passage in verse 24 in which he has just alluded to the reality that no one, without exception, no one is immune from this. No one can serve two masters. You will either be devoted to one or you will despise the other. So therefore what he's saying to these people that because they are his, he said therefore I tell you, he is directing this to his disciples. Those of us, those of you who are his disciples and the reason why you're his disciples is that you have confessed him as your Savior and committed to him the leadership and the lordship of your life. That confession brings now a different opportunity when you are stressed, when you worry, or you're filled with anxiety. And because you have confessed Jesus as Lord, there's one thing you must never worry about is your acceptability before the Father, the fact that your forgiveness of sin is already a reality, that Christ died on the cross for your sin against the Father. And as a result, now you're walking in an intimate love relationship with him the redemption and reconciliation. And, and it's a perfect, beautiful, wonderful relationship. So because of a confession of faith and because you have confessed allegiance to Jesus Christ as your master, because you have finally reached the place in your life where, you know, I can't serve Christ and I can't serve self or the world at the same time, so therefore I have selected and I make the choice to serve Jesus. And so submission begins with a confession of serving and submitting to his lordship, but it's followed up with a commitment. Notice he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. You see, lordship isn't just a confession, it is a committal to doing what Jesus says do. It's easy for us to confess, or for us to proclaim, or for us to declare our, our salvation and our allegiance and our faith in Jesus But it's another thing then to practically live out in a day-to-day reality, that proclamation. And Jesus said, once you've confessed me as your master, you must now commit to do the things that I am telling you to do. That's what disciples do. They follow Christ. And Christ says to those of us who were his disciples then and today, he says, My disciples do not, will not, under any circumstances, choose to be anxious about life. In other words, they will not let anxiety, stress, or worry dominate their lives and freeze up their faith. That's what disciples will not do. And those of us who are committed to faith in Christ who've confessed him as our Savior, must commit now to follow in his precepts, in his principles, in his commands. And for us disciples, he says, do not be anxious about life. So turn to your neighbor and say, don't be anxious about life. Easier said than done, right? Right. But once the confession leads to a commitment, There then is a conflict that leads to a battle. Notice what he says about life. Life is is that all-encompassing aspect about life. Not only the exterior parts about life, but the interior aspects about life. Life in general, life in abundance, life full and free. All of us want the abundant life. All of us want what we might call the American dream. Is that promised in scriptures? No we all in pursuit of the life, aren't we? The life. And The life that the world is offering to us is, is a life that is overly preoccupied about the things that Jesus is about to address. This life that he's describing here is a life that is preoccupied about what you eat, about what you drink, and about what you wear. Because the world that we live in is consumed about pursuing those things possessions. Jesus has just gone through an incredible discourse previous to this in the passage that we saw last week in regard to having our possessions in the proper order. And now he's saying that that what happens in life is that if our preoccupations, if our pursuits, if our possessions are not in proper order, that's going to bring an incredible amount of stress in your life. And so he says we must combat the temptation to allow the preoccupations of life to so consume us that it drives us to worry, it causes us to stress, and it leads us to this anxiety that, that sickens our bodies and preoccupies our souls. It enslaves our minds and it drives our lives. He's saying we must combat the temptation to be overly preoccupied about life's ins and outs, what we eat, what we drink, where we sleep, how we live, all of that. Because if we're not careful, we'll be consumed by it. And he says then in this rhetorical question, he says we must consider then this whole aspect about this lordship of Jesus. Notice he says in the, in the final sentence of that verse, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And your answer to that is, obviously, yes. Life is more than about what we eat. It's more than about what we drink. It's more than about what we wear. There's more to life than that. And we need to understand that in that pursuit of life itself, we must pursue not only an everlasting life with Jesus, but an abundant life through faith in Christ. And that only comes through the lordship of Jesus. Take your Bible and turn with it to Matthew chapter 19. I want to look at an example here very, very quickly about a guy who came to Jesus and he simply said in chapter 19 of Matthew in verse 16, he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to enter eternal life? And Jesus answered him, saying, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good, and if you want to enter eternal life, you must keep the commandments. And he says to him, Which ones? And Jesus answered, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Verse 21, Jesus says to him, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and then follow me. Verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What preoccupied this man's life, would you say? What was he overly concerned about? Possessions. Did he have his possessions in their proper order? The answer is no. He gave up eternal life for possessions. and That's the whole gist of what this parable is saying, not parable, but this encounter that Jesus is saying here. But notice what happens after this, and often we forget what follows. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Why were they asking that? Because you see, they believed that rich people had a divine blessing from God, and that's why they were rich. Some people believe that today. That's not true. Just because someone has a lot of wealth doesn't mean they have a, a, a divine blessing that you don't have. Wealth is not the automatic, instantaneous result of a right relationship with God because this man obviously had all those things, but he didn't have a right relationship with God. And Jesus looked at them and said in verse 26, With man this is impossible, with God all things are possible. And then Peter, notice what he says to them, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then? What then will we have? He is asking Jesus, we have submitted everything over to you as the Lord of our lives. We have given you our all. We have given you you our all. And the question is what's in it for us? Is that a fair question? Jesus doesn't rebuke him for that. He says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, with Son of Man, will sit on the glorious throne. You who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But notice what he says in verse 29. And everyone who has left houses, brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, that's huge, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Life. Jesus is saying in this passage to them and to us that when we submit everything over to the Lordship of Christ, there are rewards, there are dividends, there is a repayment in the end. But here's what I want to add make sure that you've submitted everything over to the Lord. Now, here's how this works when it comes to anxiety and worry and stress. When I have submitted everything over to the Lord, why do we worry? If my job is his, why worry about it? If my possessions are his, why be anxious about them? If my future belongs to him and I've given it to him, don't you think that he has the ability to direct, to control, and to provide for my future? If it belongs to him, then I am simply a steward of what belongs to him. And therefore, while I have a responsibility to be a good steward, I no longer have to worry about it. I don't have to be anxious about it. I don't have to stress over it anymore because it's his. You know what, I don't worry, I I don't spend one sleepless night worrying about your personal income. Why is that? It's not mine. It's yours. And so when I've given everything over to him, I don't have to worry about it anymore. It's his. He can do with that what he wants. And all the stress and all the anxiety and all the worry comes when we want to go back over and pick it up and reclaim it because we want a certain outcome or we want to do something with what belongs to him and so we stress and worry about it up here. But when it's completely and totally his, I don't have to worry about it anymore. And so we must constantly, continuously, on a moment by moment basis sometimes, when circumstances and situations hit us unexpectedly, we have to remind ourselves uh uh, not going there. It belongs to Him. I I don't have to worry about that, it's His. And so we walk with a confidence knowing that because what I have has been given completely over to him, I have submitted to him over every aspect to be Lord in every place, in every area of my life, I don't have to worry about my future. I don't have to worry about this present circumstance. I don't have to worry about those unexpected what-ifs anymore because it all is his. I am his. It all is his. And so therefore, I just sort of walk away. And I I just leave it with him. And it frees me up to live the life that I've been called to live. Well, the S stands for submit, the T stands for trust. It's important that we trust God to provide. Once I submit to Christ's Lordship, I have to trust that he will survive, uh, that he will supply or provide. Now, notice in the text, all the way over to verse 30, we're gonna deal with five verses in this one point, but there's one last sentence that sort of is the is the crutch or the, 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 the theme of this point. Because I'm convinced that, that anxiety and stress and worry is a result of little faith. Little faith. Not faithlessness, but little faith. Because when we are anxious or when we stress and when we worry, if we really had faith in God, we really wouldn't worry And we see in the text, oh, you of little faith. Jesus is telling his disciples to stop worrying. His disciples are presently, while they're listening to the words of Jesus, they are presently in the process right then and right there of being overly anxious about what to eat and what to drink and what they were going to wear. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, "The reason you're doing this is because you have little faith." Now there are two types of faith for the believer. There's saving faith and what I want to call serving faith. Saving faith is what all of us have in Christ. We have we have trusted him as our personal Lord and Savior. We have put our confidence in atoning, sacrificial death on the cross where he took upon himself our sins against the Father and he died in our place, and now we are forgiven, we've been set free, we have victory over Satan's sin and death, and we are eternally bound. That's saving faith. But there's serving faith, That after saving faith comes serving faith. Now that I'm sure that I'm saved, I then serve him, right? I'm in pursuit of the kingdom and the treasures of eternal value, what we talked about last week. And in the process of serving him, I have to exercise faith. I have to trust him. I have to believe in him. And as I'm making this pilgrimage in my journey of discipleship, there will be circumstances and situations and troubles and difficulties and opportunities in which my faith is going to be tested. And it's in serving faith then that I trust that God is going to provide for me as I serve him. Notice what Jesus says in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Notice what he says. Are you not more what? Are you not more what? Value. Are you not what? Value. Than they. Are you not more of value to me than they? Who's the they? The birds. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, birds didn't have much value. When I had a slingshot or a BB gun in my hand, they didn't have much value. You're not going to get arrested for taking a bird out. But a human being has value. Do you know what stress and worry And anxiety do. They basically devalue the selective activity of God. They devalue the selective or the selection of God. God saw you in your depravity. And he called you by name. And he plucked you out of the sea of despair and doom, and he redeemed you unto himself. He called you by name. He selected you. He handpicked you, and now you are saved. You have saving faith. And because he did that means you had value to him, right? Right? You had value in that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believed in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He had value to send his one and only son to take upon himself sins that he didn't commit so that he would die in our place. We had value, and he saw that value, and he sent his most precious gift, Jesus. What makes you think that value stops because of some circumstance? Now, what am I saying? I'm saying this. Birds don't worry about their present nor their future, and yet God supplies them. We human beings worry about the provisions of God. Why? Because it's, oh, woe is me. God doesn't really care about my needs. I'm I'm too insignificant. I really don't matter. I really don't have any value. I'm really not that important. You know, I'm just a little speck of of grain of sand in a whole myriad of of sand. And so we, we devalue then this whole selective process in which God says to you and he says to me, you are of value to me. Now, there are some people that are so stinking narcissistic that they think they are the center of the universe. I'm not talking about you if you're one of those. Okay? Just ignore what I'm saying. You need to come down to reality and be a little humble. But for the majority of us, when we're in a circumstance or a situation and we're stressed out, filled with anxiety, we think that God is too busy or that we're not valuable enough or he doesn't know our condition or he doesn't see our need. And so, therefore, we, woe is me, we do the Eeyore thing. You know what I'm talking about? Pick yourself up. And recognize your value. He handpicked you out of a sea of lostness and redeemed you by the blood of Jesus and saved you with saving grace. And you are of value to him. And he cares about you. He cares about you. And he sees you. And he knows what you need. You're of more value to him than any part of his creation. You. And I think there are some of us who sometimes need to look in the mirror and say, Thank you, God, I matter to you. And we need to say it until we believe it. Now, if you get too cocky and too narcissistic and too full of yourself, we'll bring you back down to reality. But until then, you need to do that. Notice not only does worry devalue the selection process of God, but it diminishes his sovereignty. It diminishes his sovereignty. What do you mean by that? Look at the next verse. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single day to his lifespan? In other words, you're saying it's useless to worry. I mean, some of us are getting up there in in age. Some of us are getting up there in age. And we worry about the longevity of our life. David New just retired. How many of you know that? He didn't look a day over 80. I don't know why he retired. But God knows the longevity of your life. And He knows when your life is going to end. And He and He alone is the sovereign one in authority over your lifespan. And you can't do anything. I said, you can't take any pill, you can't go to any doctor, you can't have any surgery that's going to prolong your life any more than God wants it to be prolonged. Because medicine and doctors and hospitals are not gods. There is only one sovereign God, and it is he alone who has measured the time in which you were Conceived to the time you will die, and only he who gave you life sustains your life. And so we need to understand that because he's sovereign, there's no need to worry about, about these things like death or about the longevity of my life. You know, I keep seeing all these commercials that keep asking me, you know, how long is your retirement going to last? And people say, well, I'm not, not going to outla- outlive my retirement. Well, how do you know that? And do you don't think God is, is capable enough to giving you enough until all of a sudden life comes to an end? You, you, you can worry yourself and worry to worry to become so anxious about when life is going to end and, and all of these what-ifs, it'll drive you crazy. And Jesus is saying, all that worry and all that preoccupation, now, he's not saying be careless. He's not saying be irresponsible. But he is saying don't overly stress your anxiety level to the point that, that, that you lose your faith in the sovereignty, the authority, and the plan of God. But notice then in the next verse, verse 28, worry diminishes not only his sovereignty, but it, it disbelieves in his sufficiency. Notice the text. And why are you anxious about clothing? I'm so glad we all put on clothes today. Consider the lilies of the field. Some of you ladies worried far too long about what you put on this morning. and Now look what it's got you. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Do lilies worry about anything? Do they? No. Yet, Jesus says, I tell you, even Solomon... In all of his glory, in all of his wardrobe, in all of his stuff that he wore with all of the silks and the, the clothes and the, all of that stuff that he put on, even him in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these little lilies in the field. Worry, I'm convinced, causes us to diminish the sufficient provision of God in that we In that worry, in that anxiety, in that stress, we just don't believe that God is sufficient to provide for our need. Because if God was sufficient to supply our need, then why would we worry? If God is sufficient to supply our need, then why would we worry? I think most of the time, in all honesty, we're hoping that God would supply our greed, not our need. Because we want is greedy, what God supplies is needy. But notice then in verse 30, doubt, worry, anxiety disregards the supremacy of God. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, with which is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Now, God is supreme. In that as supreme divine creator, he created all of the heavens and all of the earth. And in the beginning, God created male and female. And when he created male and female, he created them in his image. And we who are created in his image are unlike any other part of his creation. There is nothing that God created that ever said that he created that other than man in his own image. And because we are created in his image, we are created like God for eternity. The grass that he created is a part of his creation, But that grass, it is harvested and it is consumed. And once it is consumed, it is gone. There's no record of it, there's no future life. But we who are created in the image of Christ are created for eternity. And when we breathe our last breath, where do we go? Into eternity. We are created for eternity. And because we are created for eternity, Jesus is saying we must focus our attention more on what is eternal rather than what is earthly. We are not to focus on the temporary, but the timeless. Stop focusing as if you're going to live on this planet for the rest of your life, because one of these days, like the grass, your life is going to come to an end, but unlike the grass, you're going to live forever. And you're going to spend more time in heaven than you are here. So what he said last week, we're to spend most of our time doing what? Accumulating heavenly treasure, not earthly things that we can't protect or preserve. It's interesting that he talks about faith. You know, I was interesting in thinking about trust, and I came up with an illustration that is a familiar illustration to all of us in Matthew chapter 14. Turn there real quickly. Matthew 14, beginning of verse 22. The disciples got into the boat. And while they were on the boat, there was a storm. And in the process of the storm, all of a sudden, something extraordinary happens. They see something out there. And as they look out there, they see that there's a figure and they become afraid. But what happens then is, it's not a ghost, they recognize that it's Jesus. And Jesus immediately speaks to them saying in verse 27, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Some of us need to hear that today in the midst of our anxiety. We're so overly stressed and preoccupied about the uncertainty of the future and what ifs and what ands and all those things. We need to hear these words from Jesus. Take heart, it is I in the midst of your storm. Don't be afraid. I've said this before and I will say it again. The light is not at the end of the tunnel Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and if you're in a moment of darkness and and trouble, he who is the light who dwells in you is in you, and in that darkness, he resides with you, and the light is with you in the darkness. It's with you in the storm, not at the end of the storm, but in the midst of the storm. He is with you. And notice what happens in verse 28. and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And the other disciples say, what did he just say? Peter's crazy. And Jesus says to him, come. And so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Can you imagine? Walking on water? But notice what happens. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. He began to seek. He cried out, Lord, save me. That's the journey of the disciples. We trust Christ and we abandon our lives. We begin to walk this incredible spiritual high and this powerful life in Jesus. And all of a sudden, the storms of life start hitting us and we start to freak out because of circumstances and situations and opportunities and trouble and trial and temptations. And all of a sudden, we cry out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of Simon Peter, saying to him, Notice what he said, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? We go back to the faith thing again. I don't know what circumstance you're in, what, circumstance, what situation you're in. I don't know what difficulty. I don't know how dark your circumstance is right now, but what I can say is Jesus is in the midst of that darkness with you. He says, look to me, trust me. As you walk completely confident in him and trust him with your present and your future, he says to me, put your faith in me. Jesus stepped out of the boat, not because he initiated it. Christ called him to come. And because Christ called him to come, Guess what? God provided. And so we can trust him when God calls us. We can put our confidence in where God leads us. For God will provide your every need. So we must submit to the Lordship of Christ. We must trust God to provide. The O stands for operate. We must operate from an eternal perspective. Notice verse 31 there's that word again therefore it's bringing us back to what jesus has just said therefore do not be anxious in other words he wants us to remember what he has just previously spoken to his disciples then and to us today i want you to be wholeheartedly committed to me as the lord of every aspect of your life and i want you to respond differently to anxieties and to circumstances Notice he said, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? You should just circle that word saying. That's an interesting word to me. Why do we speak it? Why do we vocalize or put voice to our anxieties and our fears? Because that's what's in our hearts, isn't it? Words are powerful. Words are powerful. If you tell your children they are nothing, they'll grow up to be nothing. If you communicate to your children they're invincible, they will grow up to be invincible. I had somebody one time, I don't think it was a compliment, they told me, they said, you know what, your children believe they can do anything. I said, thank you very much. Words are powerful. And when you speak something, it comes from the heart. And what's happening here is these people are not responding wisely to the circumstances, situations in their lives, and all this anxiety, and so they are speaking these things. And as they're speaking their things, they're coming from the heart, and the power of their words impacts the choices that they're making and the lives that they're living. Jesus said, I want you to reject the world's perspective. He says in the next verse, for the Gentiles seek all these things. The world around us seeks all these temporary, earthly things. And Satan would love nothing more than to bring us along and to buy into that lifestyle. And Jesus says, don't you do that. That'll bring anxiety, stress, over-preoccupation in your life. Reject that lifestyle. Resolve then to trust me completely. He says, and your heavenly Father knows About them. Your Heavenly Father already knows what you need. I don't care what your circumstances today, what your situation may be, what your future may look like in your own eyes, He already knows what you need today, and He knows what you'll need when you get there. You say that again? He knows what you need today, and He knows what you need when you get there. And if it's all His anyway, you don't have to worry about it. Now, I'm not saying live irresponsibly, but I'm saying live trustingly, because he knows what you need. But notice what it says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. As you're making the pilgrimage, as a disciple, make sure that you seek the right things, because that makes all the difference in the world. If you're seeking the wrong things, you're going to get the wrong results. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people blame God for the results of what was never his to begin with. They blame God for the end result. And, and when you come back to the very beginning of the whole thing, they were not seeking his kingdom nor his righteousness. They were seeking his own, their own kingdom or they were not living righteously. And so they want to blame God for the results. But when we seek his kingdom, when we are seeking his purpose and we are seeking his plans and we are seeking to invest as his servants into building up his kingdom and we are seeking to live righteously, notice the promise. It says, and all these things will be added to you. You can relax, you can rest in your assurance that he will supply your every need. Children, you remember the story about the time when Jesus didn't have enough food to feed the 5,000, and they were looking for a place, and there was no Dillon's, and there was no... where do you go? Quick trip. I'm not sure there's a quick trip that could feed 5,000 anyway. And they were panicked. They didn't have the resources. And there's nothing worse than hungry people. I know what it's like to get close to 12 o'clock and not be done. You guys get angry. You got this scowl about your faces, you know. And Jesus was one of those moments, and the disciples came, and Jesus tested them, saying, where are we going to find all this food? Feed these people, they're hungry. Well, I don't know. Finally, one of said, well, we got a little boy over here with a couple of fishes and loaves. You think their anxiety was over when they brought that before Jesus? See, a lot of times we don't, look like, we don't look at that from an anxious, stressful moment in the lives of the disciples because they were wondering, where in the world is Jesus going provide, to provide for these people? And guess what? Jesus prayed, and what happened to the end result? He provided. He provided. Why is it that we have a hard time believing that the Jesus of the New Testament is the Jesus today? Well, those were miracles for him back then. They're not miracles for me today in the reality in which we live. Baloney. For he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he will provide. When we're seeking his kingdom and we are involved in seeking his righteousness. We must operate with an eternal perspective, not an earthly reality. So as we submit to Christ and trust God to provide and operate eternally, we must then lastly prioritize our expectations. What do you expect him to do? You expect to live a life without worry, without stress, without trouble, without hindrances, without an enemy? That's not life. There are some people on television and radios who promise us that if we'll do this You won't have any sickness. You'll never have any trouble. There won't be any trial. There's no temptation for your best life is now. And claim it. Name it. It's yours. Where is that here? He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Notice what he says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He says, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have difficulties. You're going to have an enemy. You're going to experience temptations. Life isn't just easy street for a Christ follower. That's why he told us to take up our cross and follow him. I don't know about you, but a cross doesn't mean easy, does it? To me, a cross is nothing but painful, hard. Now, don't get me wrong, there's there's a fullness and abundance with the life of the cross. But there's also trouble. And Jesus said you can expect trouble, you can expect difficulty. And when you do, I think what he's saying here, I want you to focus on the present, don't focus on tomorrow. Focus on the present. Make the priority of focusing on the present day right now. Don't focus. Don't worry about Monday. Focus on today. Face the circumstances you are experiencing today by faith. And once you face them by faith, you need to then forsake worrying about tomorrow and fight today's battles today and worry about tomorrow's battles when they come because today's battles are enough for you to handle by themselves. Live today for today. And I think so many times the reason why we are so stressed out is because we're so worried about the tomorrows and not the todays. There was a guy in the New Testament in John chapter 21. I want to close with this. Interesting time in the life of the disciples and Jesus has been raised from the dead and He's having this moment of intimacy with his disciples in John 21. And they had just finished breakfast in 2115, and Jesus says to Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And you know the story. He said, yes, you know that I love you. He asked him a second time, and he said, yes, you know that I love you. And he said, well, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And he asked a third time, and this concerned Peter, and he said, well, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says, I want you then to feed my sheep. It's interesting then in verse, it's in the next verse, in verse 18. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus to Simon Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, he's speaking to Simon Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19 gives us the interpretation of what Jesus said. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Saying, Saint Peter, you're going to die on a crucifix. And then he turns to Simon Peter and he says, Follow me. The path that I have for you is a path to a death on a cross. And I want you to follow me to the very end of the line. Let me ask you, do you think that made Peter a little bit anxious? Would you like to know the means of your death, how you're going to die? If you were to hear today from from him, from the Lord, that you're going to die by being decapitated from an ISIS member, how would you, would, would you be a little bit anxious? Would that freak you out at all? yeah. Can I get a yeah? Yeah. Interesting. Verse 20, notice what Peter does. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who also had, learned back, who had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And his name is John. And Peter saw John and he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What's he doing? Oh, I'm going to die like that? That gum. What about John? How's he going to die? And what did Jesus say? If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that for you? You follow me. Simon Peter became so anxious about his death, I'm convinced, that he wanted to know, well, if I'm going to die like this, how's John going (laughs) to die? He was looking for some consolation and a little bit of compassion probably from a disciple. When your future is totally and completely his, and your expectations are what God has for your life, what happens to worry? What are your expectations? Are they his? If you were to sit down and, and sort of, what does my life look like when I'm 100 years old? Would those expectations be the same ones that Christ would have for you? And I encouraged someone this week to do exactly that. I said, let me encourage you, as you're pursuing the Lord, as you're following his will as a disciple, I want you to sit down scripturally and I want you to, to write Basically, in a paragraph, what your life is going to look like when you're 100 years old. And then begin to set goals and objectives to reach that. Because I'm convinced that most of the stress and the worry and the preoccupation that we have about our lives is that we have expectations about our lives that aren't his. And in reality, when we've submitted everything to the Lord and we've trusted Him to provide, and we have operated now in, in a, a life that is fully seeking the treasures of eternal value rather than earthly value, and we prioritize our expectations to be His expectations, what do you think that does to your anxiety level? It doesn't completely wipe it out. It's not like that movie, Akuna Matata Life Without Worries that that's not reality troubles are going to come circumstances are going to be difficult trials are going to happen Situations are going to give you opportunities to exhibit faith. And when they come, I'm convinced if you've submitted to the Lordship of Christ, if you trust him to provide because you're operating eternally, you're seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, and your expectations are prioritized to meet his expectations, then you can just relax, live responsibly, and be the disciple that Christ taught you to be as you follow him with complete trust and confidence. That he, because he is sovereign, is not only Lord of all, but he is Lord of my life and Lord of my circumstance. So therefore, it's all his. If we were to operate like that, how would we live our lives? Let me ask you something: Are you there? Are you there? To be honest with you, I'm not sure I'm there. Are you there? And what do we need to do to get there? And once we get there, what do we need to continue to do to stay there? Because it's a day-to-day, moment-by-moment struggle.
1: And until you breathe your last breath,
0: you'll be involved in this battle with anxiety. Let's pray. morning. Uh, Let me try that again. Good morning. Morning. I have your attention for just a second. Zoe this morning wants to publicly display her faith in Christ. And as we observe this beautiful time in her life of her public declaration of her faith in Jesus, it's our privilege to support her in this decision. I know there are people here who have come just specifically today to celebrate uh, this baptism. So if you're here today, would you stand? I know there's some neighbors here. Would you stand? Where are you? I think they're out there somewhere. Turn the house lights up a little bit. All right, the neighbors are out there. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you for being here. Let's all stand in honor of Zoe and her desire to follow the Lord. It's going to take all of us to celebrate and commemorate this beautiful time together with her and the Lord. So, Zoe, have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, Lord? Yes? Yes? It's my privilege to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in his death, and walk with Christ in the power of his resurrection. Thank you. Please be seated.